You're listening to WXOXLP 97.1 FM Louisville, streaming on artxfm.com. And this is City State, an experimental urban affairs radio show where we cover all things civic-related with weekly discussions, interviews, music, and more, looking at urban issues and civic culture locally, nationally, and around the globe. Catch us every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. right here on WXOX 97.1 FM and streaming on artxfm.com from beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. I'm Patrick Puma. I'm Patrick Henry. This is Pat Smith. (laughs) All right. Uh, Today we are talking with a great group of urbanist friends from Philadelphia, Brooklyn, San Francisco, and Memphis to discuss how they and each of their cities are dealing with the current pandemic, some creative things citizens are doing to help out during the crisis, and some thoughts on the future. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's get started. All right. So I'm Michael Leiden, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, grew up in Maine, though, so really grappling with this challenge at the moment from both a hyper-urban perspective, but also having family in very rural places right now is also scary in a different way. So in any event, uh, that's me. Sure. So Nate Hummel and um, living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, living in a neighborhood of Fishtown on the east side of the city. Um, but I work for University City District, so I also have a lot of things going on in, in West Philadelphia. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, Tommy Pacello from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, grew up here, but I've lived kind of around the country and I'm away back here most recently in 2012. I run the Memphis Medical District Collaborative. Uh, Robin. Hey guys, from the edge of the continent here on the West Coast, currently in San Francisco, but grew up in the tropics of Los Angeles. It's definitely much closer to, to Asia, I guess. California is culturally as well as ethnically and demographically. So yeah, an interesting place from which to, to witness and experience this whole situation. Just wanted to kind of get a sense of, from an urbanist point of view, what's going on in the different parts of the country, like innovative things that we see happening, kind of problem solving around issues of social distancing and things like that. I'll go. It's a big part of um, Philadelphia. It's very walkable. So we have, uh, normally there's a lot of people out on the sidewalks and, and all that stuff. But the, the things I noticed that are very different, everybody, it seems, is walking a dog because dog parks are closed and it's a little tougher. People seem to be largely following the six-foot distancing, especially the, the people I tend to be around. But that's not the case. And we had an interesting thing yesterday, um, nearby Big Park along the Delaware River. It's called Penn Treaty Park. The city has just installed a brand new bike path that connects it in with the rest of the Delaware River Trail. So it's wonderful. It's a great way for social distancing. But there were people that were on the playgrounds. I was kind of like, my daughters were like, should I say something? And I was like, it's not really our place to to tell them how to behave. Like, I, I mean, so that was a weird thing. Our kids are like, but they maybe don't know. And there's weird things like that, that is I'm sure that's happening kind of everywhere. But a wonderful thing that has come out of this, when the order came in to everybody had to do, in order to stay open, you had to be takeout service. So whether you're a bar or a restaurant, uh, maybe you didn't have that service before, uh, but you're in a walkable neighborhood. And so you know there's people around and they're going to want to do things. So I have seen an incredible amount of side windows go into use in places that you would never have expected it. Things that are slightly larger than a mail slot 
and people are putting their, they're shoving stuff through there. That's their to go window. It's fascinating. And so the people that seem to, the corner properties, <laughs> the ones that have those little side doors seem to be benefiting the most. And you can think of just all the reasons why a corner store has been beneficial to a neighborhood over the years. <laughs> Who knew that side windows were going to benefit it during this COVID-19 exhibit? But I think that's just little things that old places, I mean, Philadelphia's been through this. Philadelphia's been through yellow fever, been through other things. And so there's lots of people talking about how it must have been back then. The fun stuff is the walkable places are still important. They're still very walkable. But something that I'm getting involved with, and, and certainly others on this call are, are doing the same thing. We're trying to talk with city officials about what, what would it be like to close down some of these streets to cars and make them available for social distancing. Um, I've run into a number of people that actually say social distancing is the wrong phrasing entirely, like something that was translated poorly, because what we want are physical distancing. Everybody's probably hearing this too, but mm -hmm. whatever it is, get that six feet is wonderful. The pushback I'm getting, and I'd be curious to what's happening in other places, our police department is saying we are extremely thin. We, we have no resources right now. How are we ever going to be manning these closed streets? And so that's a, that's a problem. And at least my organization, my budget's frozen. I, can't, I have no access to it. I can't even find money to put towards something like this. We have no money, <laughs> really just energy. So I'm curious how that's happening in other places. It seems that the city is, is willing to pursue this, which is, which is amazing on a number of levels, how far the city of Philadelphia has come in the last five, 10 years. Um, it's interesting. I mean, the walkable places, I think in a lot of, in a lot of aspects are the most interesting because you can't just stick around in your tiny little place you've got to get outside and walk around. So I'm curious how it's going in other places and let others go. I'll, I'll jump in uh, on that and, and make a, a couple of observations from uh, a new experience that, that we're having. Uh, we moved last week, so don't recommend moving during a pandemic. So we moved from a, a very urban neighborhood just on the edge of downtown to one of the streetcar suburbs. It's uh, just a, it's actually where I am now probably has a higher walk score technically, but it's a little bit more of a, of a single family home neighborhood. The thing that I've been just so impressed with is that, you know, everybody being contained to their houses is pushing that pressure out onto the street of the homes. I mean, I've never, this, this is a neighborhood that, that you would not typically have noticed people walking up and down the streets and having these sort of kids playing in the street and all that kind of thing. But you're actually seeing that as a result of this. You're seeing that the, the pedestrian traffic in Memphis has been really, really high just because people are looking for something else besides being cooped up all day. Uh, and the, you've seen, of course, people starting to decorate their homes. Uh, there's, there's lots of kids with sideway, si sidewalk chalk uh, out making you know, inspirational messages, thanking the first responders, all those kinds of things. There's a lot of uh, doctors that live in this neighborhood, younger families and younger doctors live in this neighborhood. And you know, people providing really just you know, inspirational statements to them uh, through their presence on the street, walking around, you know, everybody seems to be much more courteous. Uh, everybody's checking on everybody, which has been really great. So I think that, you know, I, I heard stories about things like during Sandy when there are these, these opportunities of crisis that come up and how tight-knit communities tend to, to, to respond to that. And so, I mean, I wasn't there, Mike. Uh, you, you may have some thoughts on that. 
Um, but I do think that that's like an indicator, if you will, on the health of the strength of the social capital that's in a place that you, you see. We're also seeing the same things that everybody else is. Nate, you know, you mentioned the examples of the quick pivots of businesses towards the side doors. We've seen some of that. We've seen uh, new business enterprises start up altogether. Uh, we've seen Jason Roberts did this down in Dallas, but we've seen it, examples of it here, restaurants turning into corner stores. One guy who had to lay off, lay off all his staff, he's a close friend of mine, and, and he had to lay off a bunch of his staff, started a company uh, overnight to put him to work using the vehicles they had on staff. It's called Two Broke Bartenders, and they're just doing uh, <laughs> you know, odd jobs and deliveries or whatever errands you don't want to run. They'll go run them for you while you're wow. in this lockdown state. I mean, and it's just primarily just to, to pay the, the workers at the restaurant that, that no longer have shifts. Wow. Yeah, I'd say in, in New York, we're seeing all the above, you know, that all those things are coming into play. Um, you know, going back to the last major, you know, challenge the city faced from a resiliency perspective was definitely Sandy. And it was, it's interesting. because like definitely, this is very different in its nature and how it's playing out and who's um, experiencing it. Um, but it feels almost eerie the same way for me because I, I'm living three blocks now from where I lived then in 2012. You know, up here on the hill, it was like we were away from the floodwaters and we were away from the, you know, um, the, the worst hit areas of the city where you knew it was happening. And I was like biking supplies into neighborhoods that were gathering resources to help these communities, but it wasn't directly my community. And it's interesting that that is um, kind of the version, like the low-lying areas of New York in 2012 was now like the hospitals, right? I mean, the, you go near a hospital now, you see it close up. You see people in lines, you see the, you know, the ambulances stacked up, you see like, you, you feel it. And like, there's a huge emergency going on in the city. But if you're not around those places, just like if you were not around the waterfront and the low-lying areas in New York City, you didn't have a second-to-second, minute-to-minute, day-to-day experience with it. So I feel both like we're in this huge crisis, but also feeling slightly disconnected from it, which is a weird place to be. And I'd say in a way that I've noticed our own changes is obviously we live so much of our life in the public realm in New York City and not having the chance to do that is a really hard thing for us um, as a city. And there are a lot of challenges that continue to like play out, obviously, but there's also these moments of realization that the redundancy that's built into the city is providing a release valve from being cooped up in your apartment. So I'll give one, one example, which is we have this playground with two playgrounds on either side of our block. And I'd say 80% of the families within three blocks of these two playgrounds spend their time in the one. And everyone shuns the other one because it has less amenities. It's basically a small playground, um, which is now more or less off limits, but also this very large open half acre asphalt patch basically with like two basketball hoops and that's it so no one really goes and spends time there because there's not much to do the other park is always jammed with people now that park being one block on the other side of our you know house is not overused but it's a place for us to go with a two-year-old who wants to run around climb up and down on a bench and take their scooter and go like crazy doing loops um so that is such an amazing example of the redundancy that's built into urbanism that like you have the second option that's just right there. It's not like we have to go 20 blocks to find that um, or hop in a car. Like there is that now option where I'm seeing what was once shunned is now this huge amenity for our family and helping us get through this crisis. So that's a very small example of I think the 
systems that are in place that New Yorkers are struggling with, they'll also find new solutions for. Yeah, you know, in experiencing this whole pandemic, I think the thing that I've been reflecting on most is how much it's a social crisis as it is a public health one, right? There are all these impacts to the way that we socialize and how we connect with one another. And it's really challenging and stretching the typical modes and kind of the, the ways that we defaulted to in terms of being together. So I think we're seeing a lot of the same patterns in San Francisco as some of the things you guys described. You know, there's more there's more just being out on your street that you live on. So there's this kind of revival of neighborliness that's happening. And neighborhoods seem to be more socially resilient and more connected. And there's there's a lot of interesting ways that other kind of identity-based communities are finding a lot of solidarity. So Tommy talked about how in Memphis there are ways that folks are pooling together to help support people who don't have work. In San Francisco, there's a, a coalition of queer nightlife kind of, you know, bars and entertainment venues and workers and bartenders who are crowdfunding. So people are all chipping in there so that folks who aren't able to work while they're sheltering in place have some support. So I, I found that to be really inspiring aspect of what's going on. And, you know, there's a lot of kids just I read this article in the San Francisco Chronicle last week about a parent whose kid, you know, 14 or 15 year old kid is, is um, studying the violin and she kind of pushed him out onto the porch one Friday night and he started playing and all of his neighbors were so excited about it that he now gives a concert every Friday night. He just walks up and down the street playing his violin and everyone comes out on their doorstep. It's, it, they're really lyrical ways that folks are finding they can come together and there are these opportunities that were always there, right? But because we were running sort of the normal circuit of our lives, we didn't avail ourselves of. So just the social human response to this whole situation, I think there are a lot of things to, to find about it that are really inspiring. And there are civic institutions too that are like holding programs online. So the San Francisco Conservatory of Music is having, what are they calling them? I think they're called tiny dorm concerts. So they're like live casting. Students are putting on little free performances and the, and the Conservatory of Music is like live casting those. And then of course, like the Y and the gym and, and the yoga studio, whomever else is also broadcasting free classes and things like that for people to zoom into into their group fitness class or whatever. So there was a great one that we saw here in Memphis where Opera Memphis got a like a flatbed trailer and you could send two or three singers out on this flatbed trailer, just people's addresses who are at home and have them sing some piece of opera to them uh, in exchange for a donation to the opera kind of deal. So there was a lot of that kind of those kinds of activities going on, which I thought were really, really cool. We've been talking a lot about how our, our open space infrastructure and our handy kind of like especially impacted in this time and in the space of like a week in san francisco or in the bay area california state parks shut down or were closed rather municipal city parks were all closed and then several counties san mateo marin county it closed all their parking lots you know i i don't think it stopped people from going out but you know there has been like you know, just like tons of people at the beach tons of people on mountain hiking trails. And I wonder how your guys' parks jurisdictions are responding to the impact. Seems like some are, are producing a lot of signage and putting that out in the public realm and out in parks. And somebody mentioned earlier, there's really limited ability to enforce a lot of these edicts and kind of 
it relieves a social contract of kind of the mechanism for enforcement. But just wondering how that's playing out in your respective cities as parks, especially. In New York, they're open. So, you know, there are police that are stationed in, I'd say, the busier, more signature parks. And they're there to ensure people are keeping their distance. I wouldn't say in my limited experience going in a couple of these parks for the last few weeks that they're particularly enforcing anything, honestly. Their presence is there to kind of remind you, but they're not necessarily, you know, yelling at people from my experience. But our parks are wide open for better or for worse. And our playgrounds are open, although they are signed. They have, you know, these playgrounds are not sanitized. They're not being cleaned. So use at your own risk. So other than that, there's really no cracking down on, on their use. And in some ways that's worrisome, but in other ways it's what's keeping people sane. So there's a real tension in Memphis around the, the parks and the use of parks right now because the, the parks are open. However, they are packed and, uh, and, and, and almost to an, to an unsafe level, kind of like everybody's, and I'm sure that you're seeing in other cities also. They did make the decision to close down the recreation fields, the basketball courts and things like that, because people were not keeping distance. They were not being you know, responsible on, on them. Um, and in Memphis, it's really weird because, you know, it's, Memphis is a majority minority community and it's an incredibly poor city. Um, and what we found out is that there's a lot of people that are either using the parks that literally just don't know what's happening. There's like a lot, just a severe lack of information. So I had a series of complaints from some of the hospitals that came into us about people using one of the parks in the medical district in a really unsafe way where there was two basketball courts on one of the park and there were 75 guys out playing ball which we would love to see. That would be a normal, awesome way to be high-fiving each other about it. But like today, not only is that a public health issue, but it's also a pretty rude thing to do right in front of your healthcare workers across the street from you trying to trying to keep everybody alive. And I, and I was torn about what to do and ultimately decided to, to call one of the officers that we know who went over and asked him to, if they could just say something to everybody. This is before they shut down the courts. And they were able to just let everybody know the, what the issue was. And since then, the rims have been removed from the goals temporarily and some things like that, that signage is going up, all those kinds of things. It's just take, it just takes a while to get for the city to react, I think, in the smartest way possible. There's no playbook for what to do in this situation. And so they're all trying to figure it out as they go. And yeah, they're making some mistakes. And hopefully it's just that they realize that when there's something that they're doing, they can uh, pivot pretty quickly and adjust. Riverside Park, which is a Tomley Park in Riverside, uh, which is right on the, the, the banks of the Mississippi River, has been incredibly crowded also. And there's been some conversations to, Nate, to your comment earlier about closing Riverside Drive, which has been a street that, that really bifurcates the park from the core of downtown and basically turning that into an addition of the park annex, if you will, to give people a little more space. But it's, a, it's something that the mayor is going back and forth on on a pretty regular basis and saying, in fact, his weekly address on Friday said, if we're not going to use the parks responsibly, we're going to have to shut them down. Yeah. Philadelphia, all rec centers are closed, but parks are open. We're not. It, it doesn't seem like it's as bad as places where people are really overcrowding, but it is, it's a weird, it's a really weird thing. We've had some really nice weather days that mm-hmm. have just, it's good for psyche, but then I worry about all this stuff happening in other places. And so there's a couple of riverfront trails and there's some streams and things that are just really popular. D- just don't know. We think we are two weeks behind New York and the way our cases are going, we we have a little bit of a cheat sheet. We can kind of see <laughs> how bad it's getting um, before we need to close down other things. But I just don't know. Cause again, to the resources thing, I don't know how anybody has these resources 
to to close all these things down or you know we have weird signs that are on playgrounds don't touch you're going to die if you play on this just kind of strange but they're that's how people are acting it, it's very very strange my my wonder is how quickly does this all go back and so we know it'll pass but then what happens after that do people do people are, are people always going to be different about this stuff and i guess nobody will know that but the fears i have are how is this going to change people eight months from now a year from now using these spaces and will will that kind of rebound like a rubber band which a lot of people are hoping it will or will it become this very different thing all right just uh need to take a quick business break here for a couple of announcements and then we'll get right back to our conversation uh, if you were listening to WXLX Louisville 97.1 before City State, uh, you were listening to The Exploded View. Crate and Barrel presents records, tapes, CDs, zeros and ones, useless information, and real humans based around a particular theme. Genres range from the sublimely ridiculous to the ridiculously sublime and points in between. So tune in at WXOX 97.1 FM or ardexfm.com on Wednesdays, 2 to 4 p.m. to hear him. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear asks you to stay safe at home during the current health emergency. If you feel you have COVID-19 symptoms, call your doctor or the Kentucky State Hotline for advice, 1-800-722-5725. If you have a life-threatening emergency, call before arriving at any medical facility so they can prepare to treat you. Let's keep our friends on the front lines safe. More information available at www.kycovid19.ky.gov. All right, let's uh, jump right back into our conversation. The nice thing that we are finding is we had a lot of discussions internally. We run several um, public spaces with a lot of movable furniture. And my head of security was saying, look, we should clear all furniture. We don't want to encourage people to sit on these spaces. And so we had a lot of discussion about that. But in the end, we landed on, well, the movable furniture allows you to be adequately spaced. And so at least we have that. So we'll try with that. But then Amtrak closed down the station to anybody that does not have a ticket. And so one of our main public spaces is right outside of 30th Street Station. So all of a sudden we had a huge influx of homeless individuals that are used to using the bathrooms inside 30th Street Station and using it for basic services. So we had to deal with that really quickly. And the city then came out and gave us a hand wash station that we now have um, in one of our spaces. And we're going to try and add more of those. But we it, it's just such a strange thing. It feels like how Philadelphia feels after a major snowstorm where everything is quiet and everything is that sort of open streets level of quietness. Wherever you go, you hear one helicopter and you kind of, everybody looks at it like, what, what is that? Where there's just constant helicopters every day, all day, and you would never notice it. So it's that, that kind of wonderfulness. The, the thing that from a, a people perspective, which is I think where all of us have to live in the end of the day is we, we care about people interacting. That new lean in and recoil that, that people have, if you see somebody you haven't seen in a little while, you're like, hey, oh, uh, six feet. Hey, uh, good to see you, but, and that happens in cities a lot. 
because you just, you run into random people. That's a fun new twist on things. What's amazing for me and just my tiny little world, um, my kids are totally, they totally get this. Like they have an innate trust in public health officials and scientists and doctors. They just, they're listening to everything and saying, this is this is great. So I don't know what it's like for people that have children that just don't care about whatever the grownups are saying about this thing. I don't care. I need to run around. I need to play. We're lucky to have children that are saying, no, we should be safe and we should wash our hands for 20 seconds all the time. And <laughs> so I'd be curious how it is for other people. If you hear stories of what, what would happen, the, the idea that we are leaving spaces open is interesting. I think everybody's kind of taken that approach. I saw Bryant Park took a similar approach. Um, certainly other bids in Philadelphia have taken that approach. So I'm wondering what other people think about that. If if we close down the public spaces, my fear is always, how do you open them back up? And does that become something that's closed for months? And some of that's just going to depend, right? I mean, like on how this thing plays out. I mean, if we end up here for, if, if this ends up being like wave after wave of this thing, like some people are saying, then it may be difficult to to have some sort of grand reopening. But I would, I would, I love the notion of having a reopening party. <laughs> yeah, like a mission you know, accomplished it, George Bush poster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, we have a stage one, yeah. a, uh, an intercity um, like Jubilee for when we can all get back together in public space. And, yeah. you know, it should be, it should be like you at the at National Open Streets Party. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, that. it's true. I'll have a, a yeah. one coronated one like next Memorial Day or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a very real conversation we're having with a number of our clients right now because a lot of our actual implementation projects, our community builds come between, you know, May and uh, end of September. And so a lot of them are, we don't know if they're going to be delayed or yet or not. Likely some of them will be, but there's already a couple of communities we're talking to where, oh, well, this event becomes an opportunity to bring everybody together for that celebration. It's an opportunity for businesses to reopen. And there's a lot of joy and capacity that we can tap into to take what is, you know, a certain scale now and make it even bigger in terms of its impact. And so one of the communities, Northampton, that we're working in now, uh, Northampton Mass, it's their main street. And it's, you know, it's the main street for not just the, the city, but for a region, in effect, you know, we're really going to be interested to see how this plays out because our project is not scheduled for implementation until the middle of August. So it, we might miss that. And that in some ways, that's great. Or other ways we might wind up really aligning these things for increasing the, the scale, the impact in the celebration. Hey, Mike, how are y'all dealing with uh, plans that maybe you're working on? We've got three big planning initiatives that are just in the process of kicking off and like shifting that all to virtual type meetings and things of that nature. Has anybody come up with any clever ways of doing public engagement virtually uh, that still feels like it's meaningful? I mean, I think it's a lot of this kind of, you know, use of Zoom or other digital tools that from what I've seen so far, we, we have things that are scheduled for meetings and workshops that are still a few weeks off. So we, we haven't yet executed on some of this, but from what my colleagues and other folks have been saying is in some ways they've been able to expand the circle of engagement. You know, we've totally retooled our strategy for Northampton in the sense that we were supposed to have these like really intense business engagement and workshop on the ground in Northampton in May. And that's now pushed off till at least June, but we're doing like virtual office hours. Like if you have a question about this project, it's a lot cheaper for me to sit down for an hour and not burn the project budget by going to Northampton, which is, you know, hours of, to get there and spend two whole days there. Like you can elongate, 
the engagement hours now and have lots of different types of touch points that are not just the one if you miss this workshop, you miss the engagement. Yeah. Like, no, we can actually retool the whole thing. And you can record them now, right? And have people watch them later. I got that right. kind of stuff. Yeah. That's right. And um, I think the the forum aspect of this of like people being able to interact and say, I support this or this seems negative or what about this issue? That's more challenging to facilitate, honestly. So I think using some combination of like an office hour, more informal thing where you can drop in and have those back and forth questions with the planning team is a big opportunity to kind of combat some of those conversations that would have be having in a much larger space in terms of the workshop. And then surveys, you know, doing more surveys, more survey monkey, trying to really understand and letting people have the, the space within the surveys to write their comments so that we can continue to kind of collect, you know, the feedback and the input from people. Yeah, we're definitely dealing with that in San Francisco right now with planning projects. We've thought of some ways, in particular one of the projects that I'm running, to do public engagement using virtual tools. You know, you're already kind of talking about this, but how will people rethink density and things? Because I guess a couple of weeks ago when this really started to fall apart, it kind of struck me that like things that I've been a big champion for and really think about like public transit and like density and like getting all these people together and doing events and things that I've done and all of this stuff seems like the wrong thing now. And I'm just wondering, and I've heard a lot of people say that they think that density is bad for this. I mean, you look back at like cholera and things like that, it's not good, but there's also the argument that in concentrated areas, you also have a lot more social networks. You have access to better healthcare systems and things like that. But I didn't know what you guys thought about how this might change the way people view the built environment. You know, I think there's this open discussion, obviously, about the pros and cons of density. And you can have a discussion any time of the year under pandemic or not. But I think for a lot of us, we feel like while we're really stressed right now, being in a hyperdense place and the risks are very evident there, I'm more interested in the response to this, you know, six weeks or six months from now. So does density allow communities to rebound faster or get the economy up and going and get people who need jobs and resources, get those things to them faster? Um, I'm relatively confident that will be the case, but we don't know yet for sure, depending on how long this goes on. Um, it may or may not have some impact psychologically on, on Americans and their interest in living in more compact places, but cities have survived for millennia through many a challenge. And I think that'll be the case after this. It's just there may be some recovery time for sure. Yeah. You had also mentioned just access to things like hospitals and stuff. In rural areas, they may not have that kind of access to hospitals and stuff. Uh, I know in Kentucky, we had a story of a hospital in, I think, eastern Kentucky. Because of elective surgeries and that kind of thing, they're basically laying hospital workers off right now which no. seems really crazy. But, you know, the result is there's no one coming in right now. And so until that kind of, until this thing hits that community, mm -hmm. you know, what, what do those workers do? And hopefully they'll be able to sort of, to ramp up. I don't right, know. I don't know right. how that works. <laughs> Send them to New York. I've <laughs> 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 got plenty of work. Um, no, that's a really good point, Patrick. I mean, I think the, you know, again, I, 
I'm obviously a huge champion of cities and um, the first person to stand up for density, but I you know, come from a very rural place. So I have like these two like, minds that are at, not at war, but are like, just struggling to deal with this issue in two very different contexts. So um, my folks live like a mile from the local community hospital, which would be overwhelmed very quickly if this thing starts to ramp up. The next nearest hospital of, of scale to them is an hour drive in three different directions. So they're actually the lucky ones living on the coast of Maine. If you're three or four hours inland, then you are two hours probably from a nearby hospital. So there's there's all those issues that come to play as this thing expands, and hopefully it doesn't. You know, it'd be I'd be thrilled if this remains an urban challenge this time around, but we'll we'll see. And I think the response is probably going to vary based on like how each city's system is built, right? Like New York's system is built around density. Like there's not like it's really difficult for New York to go back, right? right. You can't, it's not going to happen. Where, and, and I think, Mike, in our exchange, I mean, one of the things that I think I'm, my fear is, is on those cities that were built on sort of sprawl patterns and are trying to reverse course, a Louisville, for instance, right. Memphis, for instance, some of those cities who, I mean, for the past 20 years, we've just been like, I feel like begging people to build urban, build back in the core of the city, do something else. And just when they're starting to do that and people are starting to get trained, then you get hit with this. And it's like, that's the thing that makes me a little bit anxious about what our collective response is going to be for those places that aren't used to this. That don't and they don't have the systems in place, but are trying to build them. Because frankly, building a system around in the short term around density is much more expensive than what we've been doing. Long term, I think it ends up being more resilient, more sustainable, and more cost effective. It's just under the conventional calculus by which we apply municipal finance. It's it's expensive, costs a lot of money. So I just am hoping that we we keep our resolve. Uh, that we've had as a city and, and keep trending towards dense, walkable urban places, which is where we're, we've been headed and I hope it keeps that way. Yeah, and I think the, the rhetorical call for us as urbanists and designers and planners is to emphasize how sprawling pattern and everything that comes along with it, all the social stuff that attends that physical pattern um, has a lot of really huge external costs, right? And it's something that we're aware of, but like, yeah, Tommy was just saying, access to healthcare, resource efficiency, it's really important for us to keep citing those realities about how dense walkable places um, mean that people are generally healthier. They're, they're walking where they're more socially connected or more socially resilient. I think it's critical that we as urbanists control that narrative, right? And, and do our best to push that, that out there because I'm, or be prepared to if, it, if it's necessary at least. And I, and I don't know if it's CNU or who the right group is, but somebody ought to be, be leading that or, or us. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't, hadn't thought about it from that perspective, Tommy. But yeah, I guess one of the reasons I am concerned is because I'm in a city that's just starting to get the densities back. It, it doesn't seem like it would take much for it to stop or for people to want to be as far away from other people as possible. I don't know. You know, it seems like every time that Louisville's just about to really make this breakthrough, then like the recession hits and now we have this. And, <laughs> right. You know, things right. just taken off and really looking good and all of a sudden we get cut, cut off at the knees. But, you know, it's a lot more than that. So the whole world right now. But uh, yeah, hopefully feel somewhat more normal at some point. I was really curious when we were starting, started this conversation to hear just about the, the denser cities and how they're handling. You know, we're lucky in Louisville to have these big 
park systems when you consider the level of density and just how big some of our park systems we have a Olmsted park system that's really big and then we have a couple other park systems we have one downtown and then the parklands of Floyd's Fork you know Patrick Puma you were saying you know just your concern about how many people were using the parks uh, right now and the fear of them closing down and then just thinking Mike talking about being you know in a place like New York being in one of those larger say Olmsted parks and how many people are in I mean on a normal day just trying to say biking through and then people running and skating and all those things and how you just have to constantly sort of weave and dodge through you know, on those sort of big pass systems that are closed down to vehicles and just open to, you know, all pedestrian type users. That has to be a huge challenge um, in those bigger cities that you guys are are living in. And just something I was thinking, like, you can't close those down. I mean, people would lose their minds. Yeah. yeah and there are such big open spaces, our Olmstead parks and some of our other larger, you know, scale parks in New York that you you could try to police every square inch, but you just can't, you know. And that's that's exactly why there's been this very loud call for opening streets to those uses in New York and in Philadelphia and other large dense cities because the need is so obvious and evident. And in New York, you know, I see all these articles coming out the last three or four days about, oh, New York is innovative, they're responding to this issue. Um, with by opening streets. This started on Friday. It was four streets and four boroughs, and it totaled about a mile and a half. So these are like four block stretches at a time. If you don't live within two or three blocks of those places, it's, it's, it's meaningless. And so the scale of response is nowhere near the scale of the problem and the challenge. And where I think a city like New York is being cut off or cutting itself off on its own knees, unlike a Bogota, is that we did not have a strong mechanism in place to allow citizens to, you know, help volunteer, take a leadership role in managing these types of closures. I think the city, you know, is getting a directive from advocates such as myself and many, many others, as well as from the governor saying open streets, but there's no muscle that's being exercised. We do have block parties and that's a very well-worn muscle, but the city's not trusting people to just throw up a barricade and let, let things happen. And I think that's a huge misstep. Whereas in Bogota, they were able to leverage what they do every weekend, where they shut down you know, 70 miles of streets every single weekend, largely through volunteer you know, operations and involvement. If we had that muscle built in New York, we would just point to it and say, we know how to do this. Yeah. We, we don't at that scale, so we're really struggling. Yeah, I would think you really need those streets for people to get out. I know we've seen, like, even in our neighborhood and stuff, people will just get out and bring their own chairs and, like, sit out in a front yard somewhere, you know, six to eight feet apart. Or in the parks, they'll do that. And I would think with just the level of density in, you know, Philadelphia, San Francisco, New York, uh, and, and I'm not sure what the the density levels are in Memphis. I assume they're similar to Louisville, but similar. yeah, people getting out, if you could close off those streets, you could make those places available for people to get out and just be able to have conversations out in the street in their own chairs and gather. And I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, on Friday, we piled the kids into a wagon and just walked around for blocks and blocks and blocks through this neighborhood. And 
every street we ran into people that we didn't know lived in the neighborhood. Of course, we're new to the neighborhood as well, but, and, and that's exactly what they were doing. They're all sitting out on their front yards, respectively. The kids were kind of running around in the street and the parents were keeping their distance and having cocktails. But I, I do think that there's some hesitation where, you know, Memphis has been a pretty much a rules more are more suggestions kind of place. I mean, we've done a lot on the tactical urbanism kind of front. And I think our, our community, and it's just part of our DNA, just to kind of go out there and try things and ask for forgiveness. We're hesitant to do that right now. I think that there's, there's, a, there's an extra degree of caution that everyone is practicing. And I think that, the, that something like going out and just on your own without some sort of protocol, closing a street would be something that people would say, I don't know, because what if somebody gets sick and needs to quickly get to the hospital or this, that, or the other? I'm just going to... I'm happy to play in the front yard or, you know, on this front stoop and there's not a lot of traffic and we'll let the, we'll put some flags up to warn cars that kids are playing or something like that. We're seeing that. But frankly, I think everybody's a little bit too anxious to try to push anything that's not official. Yeah. And I think, well, I think cities like Louisville or Memphis are sort of places that we could do what you were saying, just the sort of out in the yard kind of thing. But once you get into a certain level of say a New York or Philly or something, those streets just seem so important to be able to close yeah. off to do that. We have no yards. Yeah. <laughs> right. We have streets, right? That's, I mean, that's not a thing whatever. Yeah. You don't have much street either. Actually. <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. Uh, just stepping away for a second from our urbanist conversation with our great guest for a little business. Stick around after City State for The Vibe. The Vibe makes an effort to spread consciousness through music. Every week for an hour, Evan dives into an expansive selection of funk, soul, reggae, and world music, celebrating culture, life, and paying homage to amazing artists from the past and present. It's always a diverse collection of tunes to groove to and put a smile on your face. Wednesdays at WXOX from 5 to 6 p.m. During the current COVID-19 pandemic, it is important to maintain a safe and mindful distance when shopping for essential goods and checking out. Remember to sanitize your hands upon leaving. Do not go into a grocery store if you are sick. Instead, choose online ordering and curbside delivery options. Shop smart, shop safe, and be safe. All right, let's uh, jump back into our conversation. Well, the stoops, stoops are coming back in a different way. I mean, you, you walked around two days ago. My wife and I went out for a run towards the end of the, the afternoon, and there were a lot more people out on the stoop than you would normally see on, see on a spring day just because that is available to them. So that's yeah. interesting. And people are converse, you know, conversational. They're playing their own music. So it's, it's kind of nice to see that in, in some ways. But you know, I, I think the role of the city in a place like Philly or New York or, or San Francisco at this point should be look, us as a city can set a policy around what kinds of streets under what conditions and how that happens. And we can provide maybe the resource of the barricade or the cone, but we shouldn't be expecting, I don't want our police officers managing open streets in little neighborhood context right now. That's the horrible use of resources. And that's exactly what's happening. And so at every block end, there's like two cops for these small little open streets that are happening in New York this weekend, which is total, total overkill. And it's putting resources in a place, uh, this is a misallocation. And so, yeah, it's almost like they want this thing to, to fail because people will see it and say like, there's very few people out using this right now. We had a rainy weekend, all we see is cops. We were doing this in some communities, honestly, that are already over-policed. This doesn't feel right. 
And I'm just really disappointed in that because I think there's a lot more trust that the city could be giving to local communities, to co-op boards, to block associations, to in a framework of certain places under certain conditions for certain times of the day to just literally take the street back for six hours, you know, and, and I, we, we have the ability to do that. And we're not leveraging it in New York. And I think that's a shame. It is a huge missed opportunity. And it's a good, it's a good moment to call out this list that Mike has started kind of crowdfunding intel about what all is happening in other, in other parts of the country, because yeah, we don't have a, a playbook, but it's gotta be working mostly in some ways somewhere. Right. And so that's one of the challenges and exciting opportunities about what these social and public health crises present is just how our ingenuity, you know, starts to come into play and how we can network and share around what's working. And um, all of these things that Mike was talking about it, a policy framework, a regulatory and kind of structural outline for how you could roll this out. Because there is, you see a lot of informal neighborhood, street level neighborliness, you know, like everybody out on their stoop and, and having beers on their stoop. But with each other, but from across the street, it can certainly be experimented with at, at scale. And so closure of all of our state, state and county and municipal parks out here in the Bay Area is, is pretty crushing, right? Because there's, there's then no alternative. And it was, a, yeah. in some respects, a panic move because there were droves of people who would otherwise normally be at work and kids who would be at school who are suddenly availing themselves of, of all of our open space resources. But, you know, maybe, maybe that's a, that's something that building on and following on what, what Mike is assembling, we, we help to do is, is create more exchange with our colleagues in other places. And it, it could be open streets, it could be other things, but just to, to network around our, our response to it. Yeah, I really love that idea of the sort of maybe the city supplying those materials, whether it's cones or barricades, and then maybe the neighborhood associations or whatever, um, managing it, you know, and maybe you're setting a time from this time to this time every day, you know, like you said, Mike, that six hours or whatever that just lets everyone get out uh, yeah. and use the street. If, if I had to bet, <laughs> not a betting man, but if I had to bet, um, we could find two people per block to constantly be managing the end of the block to let emergency vehicles through, you know, necessary vehicles, please. I mean, that right. I would, I would just love to go out right now and be outside for six hours, you know, or on a two hour shift to just manage the cone. I don't think that would be a problem in, in most neighborhoods in New York city right now. Yeah. Um, your transportation agency could run zoom based trainings, right? It's a, it's a 45 minute training on how to be, um, you know, a block monitor, you get your certification, you pull, pull together with five or six of your neighbors and boom, Monday through Thursday, you've got an open street in your neighborhood. I mean, we've got 80, 80 units in, in this building I live in. And within, like, I'm not kidding, like within 16 hours of this crisis really becoming known to most people in New York. So let's say two weeks ago, there were floor captains. There was a whole network set up around managing our elderly neighbors and, and how to care for them. You know, there is um, all the protocols put into place around the use of the elevator, the laundry room, deliveries, like all this infrastructural stuff that happens inside the building was figured out like that. And people stepped up immediately to do this. We can take that externally and put it into the street. There's, there's no reason why we can't leverage that. We just aren't. So I'm really curious to see if some municipalities can find that balance and that, you know, find that, that way to help. Because if this goes on for you know six more weeks, for six more months, we're really going to need something that's more effective than what we're doing right now. 
Well, I was just going to say, um, you have 80 units in one building. How many buildings are on that block? And how important is that outdoor, is that street when you think about, you know, 80 times, I don't know, four and how many people are in, you know, I mean, do the math and you quickly realize you desperately need the public space outside the building. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what we have Four. we live in a large co-op complex, um, four buildings in this cluster. And it's exactly that. We have a courtyard, an inner courtyard that can be utilized to some degree. But that's why our playgrounds on either end are so important on the block. So you're right. And repeat that block after block after block in New York City. I wanted to ask you guys about um, what you see is happening in kind of your local design community and how folks are responding. Um, you know, whether that's urban design or industrial designers, there's been, I've been reflecting on how a lot of the, at least the tactical urbanism stuff that started in California was in response really to another public health crisis, which were traffic fatalities and deaths. You know, in San Francisco and LA, we were creating parklets and pedestrian plazas and really rethinking that street section and trying to make it safer for pedestrians and cyclists to move around and, and to increase that mode. And there are really awesome ways that this is not particular to San Francisco, but the industrial design community is really responding to this. So like the folks down at Better in Better Block in, in Dallas have been experimenting with, you know, um, rapid fabrication of PPE, personal protective equipment, face shields and other things. And there are like industrial design students who are creating these rapid prototype 3D printed things to convert doors and door handles into no touch door handles, you know, things that you can wrap your elbow around in order to open or push open. And there's just all this innovation that's happening, you know, folks who normally make furniture are now turning their resources and their talents to trying to respond to, to the, the needs of our like healthcare workers and their, their like, you know, pop-up ICUs, flat pack pop-up ICUs that folks are developing, I think, out in, um, in Italy. I, I haven't detected necessarily like a, anything that's like specifically San Francisco or Bay Area, like a response to this, you know, around the kind of like the design sector. Yeah, I don't know if it's design necessarily, but I mean, the, our urban distilling companies in town have been trying to convert over to making hand sanitizers out of the ethyl alcohol that they create. And uh, I can see like a new little niche happening with that. Some people were even talking about the dispenser should come in little barrels finished in oak barrel things but uh it's been <laughs> great to see them starting to do that i'm not seeing it i mean i know in my design community everybody's terrified that this is 2008 all over again and i know i personally had to push back a bunch of projects that we don't know again because i mentioned my budgets have been frozen so we can't really do some of the fun stuff but i just wonder the thing that we can all do is I mean, what Jason's doing in Dallas is just outstanding um, with, with the shields. It's incredible. Uh, there's groups here. So there's some of the, the maker economy that I often talk about how strong it is in Philadelphia. Um, a lot of them are switching right over to this kind of stuff, to doing the protection, just shields in particular, those like kind of the white clear things with the, you can 3D print those, the band that sticks to your head really easy. And then it's just glue. And I've seen that there's a group here, public workshop they're switching over to all this stuff. So I think that's, that's something um, we could all do on our own, I guess, is if anything comes up, try and push people to those makers 
to those people that are doing this stuff that can create things to be really creative and say, hey, can you just maybe take a look at this? So I don't know if anybody has any access to those types of individuals who are searching for things, but maybe through social media, that could be a way. Um, my thing with it is the the design community is going to be, we're going to be the ones that figure out the simplest ever hand wash station, right? That'll be something that Better Block comes up with next year or some other group. And I think this is where this mentality of here's the puzzle pieces I've been getting and I don't agree that many of them fit together so I'm going to cut them up and do it this way that's kind of how we always put together a puzzle and I, I think that's going to be really useful as we are trying to come out of this and people are going to say hmm what if this this thing is expensive this group needs it they don't have it maybe that's where placemaking kind of can come in and, and do something about that and so I think the trick is how do we just stay engaged with people so you don't lose all of them. You can imagine the types of people that are thinking of these things, industrial designers in particular, are, I mean, I, I graduated in 2001 from college and my first job was, we were the first graduating class after 9-11. And so everybody was doing things differently. So people that normally made benches were making bollards. So everybody shifted production. And if that kind of thing happens with industrial designers where they can shift production to how can we make it so that all these Purell stands that are going to be in every public space that we see from now on, um, how can they look nicer? How can they be more aesthetically pleasing a little? I mean, that's probably where design is going to come in, trying to do the things that we now have to have and make them less ugly. But where do we go as creatives with this? I'd love to know uh, if anybody has any ideas how we can help and that kind of stuff. I, I think that's just important. I think keeping the dialogue going and having these discussions you know i was on a call i think tommy was on there with uh, ian from oakland just talking about breaking down these traditional networks that we have and the example that stuck out with me that ian mentioned was that you know his father owned some kind of meat packing company in new england and then when the restaurant started cutting back they weren't he wasn't able to get rid of or sell the meat that he had and already there somehow they knew that there was a senior daycare center like 90 minutes away that suddenly wasn't able to get the food and things that they needed for their their uh, residential base uh, because of the runs on groceries and things like that so they were able to be like well here's the way to two people uh, two groups that would never talk to each other suddenly there's like a reason for them to be talking to each other and it's like how do we break down the original networks that are there, or at least think differently that these networks aren't all uh, stuck in like stasis? Like there's maybe ways to start to develop connections and ways for people to communicate, to start to understand needs, make connections that maybe rewires our social concerns. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity. And think about you know the flu pandemic in 1918. They didn't have Zoom. They couldn't connect with people across the country, across their neighborhood, across their city. And we have resources and networks to harness now, which is showing me resiliency in all sorts of social ways across you know, my world that we all have access to on this call and more and more people have access to you know, locally, regionally, and globally. So it, it makes total sense we can leverage this for good. And um, you're seeing that every day, which is really exciting. And that gives me hope in the way that we can uh, fast track and leverage each other's skills and networks collectively to, to make make a dent here and make this thing go away as soon as possible and then do the hard work of recovering together you know yeah well 
really appreciate you guys jumping on and uh, having this conversation. It's good to see all your faces for sure. Yeah, likewise, guys. Yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. Thanks for bringing us together, Patrick. Appreciate yeah, it, Patrick. All right, everybody. Take care, everyone. See you. Take care. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of City State on WXOXLP 97.1 FM Louisville. You can catch us on Twitter at underscore City State. If you have any ideas or comments or questions, or if you'd like to let us know about some of the creative things going on in your community to help get through this crisis. All right, everybody, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Take care.